0: Casey listen man uh number one thank you so much for coming on I gotta say I'm looking at my show notes and I don't quite know where to start with you because <laughs> there's so many things I think we can unpack um sure. you know uh if for anyone who doesn't know you Casey I mean uh may I dare say you're kind of a one of the founding fathers of the sharing economy I mean uh you you're, mm-hmm. you're the founder of couchsurfing.com where you were the, the original founder so you came up way before you know anything like airbnb or, or uber so you're kind of the founding fathers of that stuff um let me you know instead of me doing it let me let you introduce yourself tell everyone a little bit about uh, number
1: one a bit of your backstory and also what sure. you're up to right now happy to thanks Nick, for having me on the show um yeah so i'm casey fenton i uh, like you said uh, some some people consider me one of the pioneers of the Sharing economy. Um, I've been involved in started for a long time. I'm on my fifth company. Grew up in the Northeast, um, and I've always, you know, loved b- building things and loved trying to figure things out and try try to um, solve problems. I guess uh, so. That's what I've devoted my life to. Um, you know, sold my first company. Started couchsurfing. Built that up to like three million in revenue and uh, brought it to Silicon Valley. And so we went through that whole Silicon Valley thing. Uh, still live here in Silicon Valley. Uh, working with uh, startup founders and working on a couple startups of my own. Um, one is called Upstock, which is uh, you know it's basically uh, equity as a service. Uh, worker equity as a service. You can you know get you can any, any company anywhere in the world, generally speaking, can um, bolt on a, a, a cloud-based equity system that uh, gets workers really inspired to want to do the best work of their life, get emotionally invested in in the company and, and, you know, creates great alignment. Uh, Also working with my wife on a platform and book about a human identity hacking or ego hacking, as we like to call it. Uh, And that's been a topic near and dear to my heart over the years. Um, I've certainly learned a lot about ego living in Silicon Valley and working in startups, but then, you know, just in life with, you know, family, friends. I mean, ego is one of those things that it, it interacts with pretty much every moment of our day and every decision we make. Yet it's the one thing that we, we know almost nothing about. If you ask a hundred people, what is it? You get a hundred different answers, a bunch of vague responses, but it affects every piece of our life. So wouldn't it be great if we understood it and we could hack it for, for, uh, for good to to you know, improve the world. Okay. Right, so, so, I'm, so I'm really curious then, cause
0: that's an interesting point. Uh, there, I can't think of a, like a clear cut definition of ego. I
1: never really thought of it that way for you. What yeah. is def- like, what is ego then? Sure. So, um, ego has different meanings, but for the, at least for the book and the platform, um, ego is uh, is a part of your. It's a part of your biology. Really, it's like built into your DNA that tries to get your basic needs met. It's asking, you know, what 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 about me? What do I need to do? Um, it could be basic needs like food, sh- shelter, air, water, all of, all of those good ones. But the usually the one need that we think about that it has the most um, effect on is our desire to look good and avoid looking bad and to go toward, uh, people, things, ideas that, um, uh, want to reinforce that, that, that kind of reinforces themselves. So it's like a, you know, almost like a snowball. You think of any, e- your ego is like a snowball. It's trying to go toward the things that are positive in our identity, avoid the negative identity pieces. And it's almost like it can be, begin, be, a, be a, a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy where, however your ego is programmed or whatever you've identified yourself with, you're going to see that everywhere you go in life and, um, uh, you're going to be reinforcing it. So you've got to be very careful about how you program it or what you identify with. So,
0: okay. Yeah. So it's, it, it's basically just your, it, your ego is that little voice telling you what you want to
1: hear. So ego is, the, I would say it's a biological function inside of your brain. Right. And it is, um, identifying with external ideas, external objects. Uh, maybe it could be internal. It, it's it's keeping track of how you feel or um, and how others feel about those things that you've identified with. Now, you could be programmed by other people. You could program yourself. So if, for, for instance, here's an example. I grew up uh, working on Saab automobiles, right? Love Saabs. I was in my driveway all the time doing engine swaps. And so if somebody said, oh my God, I love Sobs. they're so great, love those turbocharged cars. I'd be like, yeah, thank you, that's great. I love that you said that, it makes me feel good. I'm just feeling ex- kind of excited right now. But if somebody said, oh, Sobs, what a sob story. Those cars are a p- piece of crap. I'd be like, oh, what are you talking about? Did you just call me a piece of crap? I'm, not, I'm really kind of pissed off right now, right? So, th- I mean, here it is, it's a car, it's not me, yet I'm having an emotional reaction to somebody saying it's good or bad. Just like they said I'm good or bad, That is ego at its finest, and so when we're going through life, we're trying to make our ego ledger, as I like to call it. Uh, It's just you know we're keeping track of of all of the things we're associated with, and whether they're positive or negative, and whether other people are seeing them as positive or negative. And then you get these kind of ratios of how how much positive and how much negative uh, these things are, and and then you kind of have this the phenomenon where you have feedback ratios in relationships. And your ego comes into relationships, you could get into downward spirals. So there's all these ego dynamics that come out, and there's these ego traps, as we call them, that you can find yourself in if you're not aware of what the ego traps are. And then you can get yourself out of these ego traps by applying ego hacks. So there you go. That's the, the, the kind of the the short version of it. We're writing a book that um, is you know kind of an emotional, uh, intellectual, less active, like it, it's academic enough we're trying to make it fun right so it's not just all research although there's plenty of research in there uh in a way that people can emotionally understand it and then apply it um, the big the biggest thing about it is this one um, kind of insight and that is that we become what other people tell us we are for social cohesion it's kind of like you become the five people you hang out with you've heard maybe heard that uh, but now, recent more modern research shows you become all of the people you hang out with, and all of the people they hang out with, and the people they hang out with, um, to varying degrees. And so you, and they're programming you, and you're becoming who they want you to be, or just who they are in general. It's so just maybe a shorter, shorter way to say it. Uh, so you got to be careful of how you're being programmed. How are how are these people programming you? Are they holding you back? Are they pr- promoting you and helping you? Um, yeah. So you become who other people tell you, tell you you are. So you can use that because it's a problem and a solution. The problem is well, you're becoming who other people tell you are, but the solution is, well, you can use that to figure out how to get your friends to tell you who you, that you are, who you want to be. And then you'll become that much okay. faster.
0: Okay. Okay. So uh, number one, by the way, on the sob thing. So I personally love subs. My brother, growing up, had a sub nine three. The last year that they made them, yeah. He like same thing. He had it chipped, and like he had so much work. And it was one of the funnest cars to this day I've ever driven. So right? Yeah. So bad. fun. Yeah, you're good. Uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, besides that, um, so wow. I, I so basically that there's a there's kind of like a check. and There's checks and balances with your ego. I never really thought of it that way. And so for you mentioned also um, ego traps. So that's right. For, like looking back for example at um i like some of the previous companies and stuff I, I i worked at i remember one of the first companies um i worked in in tech it was actually a shared economy company uh, it was or it was a startup in that in that uh, you know that ecosystem and um looking at i think the most mm. valuable, valuable takeaway i took of it wasn't like how to raise capital you know how to how to you know how to raise money or how to sell a new product or or you know how to develop trust it was more. Uh, the ego side of it, going through the rejection, like rejection after rejection, but then having the climb of once you start building a product, you know, having attention, raising money and having these successes, it was looking at how different people reacted to it. Looking okay. back, that was the most valuable lesson. So what do you think for a lot of entrepreneurs? Um, what are some of the traps that they may not see coming that they're going experience
1: right. in the process? Oh gosh, so many, but here's, here's, here's a couple of, um, uh, ones people probably recognize is optimizing for being right instead of optimizing for connection. So it can be a big trap, right? You want to opt you're optimizing for, uh, you know, you always want to be right. And, and, and a lot of times people in tech or people in, um, in companies, they don't want to look bad or, you know, especially if you're a leader, you feel like, Oh, if I'm going to, if I look, if I, if I'm wrong, if I, maybe people won't trust me as much or it'll weaken my leadership, which is totally not the case. The, the more that people can connect to you and feel um, like that authentic connection and they, then they can trust you. They know it's real. So really, it's like you want to make sure that your feedback ratio with people is a good healthy ratio. It's usually like four to one, four positive to one negative. And so the more vulnerable you can be um, with people, the more approachable you are. Uh, so there's, a, you know, when you're start, first starting off and everything seems scary and overwhelming and you don't know how to do it all, um, it's easy to fall into the trap of trying to just look good um, and not be real. So that's one. Um, then there's also a trap of trying to, um, trying to, uh, basically you you're, you choose stories that feel good. Like like when you know it's a situation happens, maybe it's a challenging situation. Whatever we react to it by making a story. Often we'll make a story that makes ourselves feel better because it doesn't make us look as bad. Maybe. Um, but it, if we do that too much and it gets us out of touch with the average reality that everybody else is experiencing, that can be a problem too. That can be an ego trap. So you want to avoid, you want to be careful to, 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 to have the ego hack. The, the flip side of that is you start to identify with getting to what's real instead of, uh, feeling good. So then if you get in the situation and you're, you're like, wow, I could have ch- chosen a story there that would have made me feel better from an ego perspective that got me out of touch actually no i'm going to choose a story that gets me more in touch and then just that action has the ego payoff of making you feel better that counteracts that the negative that you might have experienced so um there's just there's a, oh, another example so so another an like, ego hack so what you're saying is
0: kind of if you find yourself getting out of touch in reality or kind of you know like you said steering into the skid of that self-fulfilling prophecy it's put yourself in a position where you're going to like, it's going to snap you out of it. Maybe put yourself in a situation that's uncomfortable
1: or where it's going to, it's going to, I guess you can say, humble you. Uh, Yeah. Identify. You can identify with, I'm, I'm somebody who wants to be humble. I'm somebody who wants to not just have to be right all the time. Um, uh, I want to stay in touch with what's real, the average reality that everybody's also experiencing. Because when you do that, when you see yourself doing that, then you get a positive ego payoff of taking that road and it counteracts any negative you might've felt. And this is what, you know, what Carol Dweck, the work of Carol Dweck, Growth Mindset, if you've heard of this, it's a huge movement now. Um, what she has developed is basically an ego hack. It's, it's uh, instead of thinking about how I failed, you know, she talks about not yet or that this, this um, you know, I got a bad grade on the test. Well, that's just more information on my quest to learn and grow. And it reminds me that grade doesn't remind me that I'm a failure. It reminds me that I'm learning and growing and my next grade will hopefully be better.
0: Okay. Wow. This is, uh, I love how you're like, you're, you're taking something so abstract and it's like, this is very concrete stuff that can be used. I don't, I'm going to save some for the book because I be to it uh, <laughs> the, I'm sure we can keep on going on that just to kind yeah. of, um, pivot too, because I want to be able to talk and unpack, you know, your, your experience with couch surfing. So yeah. looking back at that, you know, there's, there's always going to be new markets and new industries that come up. And they all kind of go through the same cycle of, you know, having an innovator, early adopters and things like that, looking back. And like I said, you're very much one of the, one of the founding fathers of the sharing economy, which is now, I mean, it has mass adoption. It's a, a, you know, it's a multi-billion dollar, uh, it's a, you know, it's in the hundreds of billions now as as a Mm -hmm. industry. Mm -hmm. What was, um, what were some of the challenges that you faced that you didn't expect to face going through that process, getting in so early and bringing it to where it was today?
1: Sure. I mean, I think probably the biggest challenge I, I had was uh, you know, being a computer programmer, being somebody who's pretty shy, a shy person in my class. I was one of the more shy people. I grew my hair really long, like didn't want anybody to call on me, sit in the back of the class, the whole thing. Um, but I loved computers and I, you know, just started programming and and um just loved everything that I was learning with computers. So I spent most of my time learning computer languages instead of like, you know, French and Spanish, which I probably should have spent more time with. Uh but the, the big challenge I had was really leadership. Uh I realized when Cal tripping was kind of having some major problems and, you know, we we're kind of breaking down at different times and, um, we're going through some major challenges, uh, and on, and on, uh, that, that it was really came down to leadership that people were looking to me to like, lead the charge. Like, where are we going? What are we doing? Uh, what are we here for? And, um, I didn't want to take on that role because it just seemed like, that's not me. I, I'm a, I'm a quiet person and I kind of like to be more in the background. Um, uh, and, and also my style was an affiliative style. So if you look up Daniel Goldman's leadership styles and go on Google images and um, look at some of the like charts, you'll see right away that there's like you know, five to seven different leadership styles and each one is appropriate at different times. And I was really li- relying heavily on the uh, affiliative, like, hey, let's just get along, kumbaya, maybe democratic style. Like, what do, you th- what do you think about this? What do you think about this? What do you think about this? But that's not a very powerful leadership style. Sometimes I'd even do pace setting where I'd just be like, look at me how fast I'm programming. You should keep up, right? Uh, not even, that's not even the best. So the best are generally considered visionary and coaching. Um, and so I had to learn those and I had to learn to choose different leadership styles at different times. And it took me a while. And now I feel like, you know, 20 years later, I'm like, yeah, that's super easy. And I can nail those things and uh, I have fun doing it and fun teaching that. But it took a while. So, I mean, the sooner, nerdy people who are starting companies who don't see themselves as leaders can switch that over and say, I'm going to start learning about this. I'm going to start reading these books on leadership the faster that hopefully as your company grows, you can meet that challenge. And then you'll be the right person at the right time to lead your company. But if, you're, if you don't have le- those leadership skills, uh, you know, God help you. Uh, it's, it's just going to be, it's going to be hard, you know? So, <laughs> you know?
0: So in other, but I mean, you were able, like it, like you said, it was a challenge, but you were able to fit into that role.
1: I was, but it, it took many years and it took many struggles. And I knew that that was a major problem that I needed to solve. And if I didn't solve it, my company and other companies that I'm working on, were not going to work out very well because when you have to solve hard problems and you need, you need the right, leadership style at the right time. And if you don't have that, people are just looking around confused. You know, they just kind of drift off. Um, they start arguing. They start saying, you know, they don't they don't know where we're going and what, what we exist for. I, I think one of the, the early days in couch tripping, um, I didn't know how to organize people enough. And I I said, Oh yeah, I know. We're a duocracy. If you have an idea, just get out there and just do it. That's right. But that was a major mistake because then you have 50 people, they're all taking small steps in different directions. And then eventually they're like, but I just did all this work. And now these other people are here. They don't, they don't really like it, appreciate it, even care about it. And everybody's saying, well, what about this? And, and I need some support to implement it, to write copy, whatever. And then nobody helps you. And then you get pissed off and you're like, well, you know, I came here to help. And now, you know, that now I'm, I'm upset. So, it's much. I learned. It's much better to have powerful leadership climb one mountain at a time, get figure out why, what mountain that is, get everybody on the same page, and say, "Let's go there." And this is why, rather than you know small steps and everybody goes nowhere, and uh, which can be very frustrating. So that was one of the big lessons I had to learn early that, on. It's really interesting
0: you say that because, um, uh, that's actually something I have noticed. Like I've even been doing up until recently, and a lot of other small. You know, when you're in a small company, uh, people have this mindset of. You know, we're a small team, but we want to have the smartest people. And it's not a quite, you don't tell them what to do. Give them a problem. They'll, they'll attack it. The truth is, no, you need to provide direction. And that's something I learned the hard way. I thought it was just a question, find the best people and just let them do their thing. Like you said, I love what you said, a duocracy. The fact is you need to, people need leadership. People, yeah. crave. you know, mm-hmm. um, they crave um, organization. They want to be. Yeah. Led. So, so just coming back, you were saying there's uh, it was seven different types of leadership. Um, do they, right. are there some that are just like quantitatively better? You're saying, or are they just, it
1: yeah. Has it really- um, yes and no. So each one is important at different times. You might, in one day you might want to use three or four times. It's a, it's like, also, so there's, you know, it starts off as visionary and sometimes people call that a plus three. So it's like, Hey, this is where we're going. Can you imagine that? It's going to be like, when we get there, it's so great. I can imagine it. Let's imagine that together. And then coaching would be like, Hey, Nick, I really believe in you. You're you're doing the best job. I can see where you're going with this. Um, I'm here every step of the way. You're improving all the time and I'm helping you and we're doing this together. You know, in like coaching, right? And then you can also have, you know, Democratic, which is like, hey, let's ask everybody on the team what they think. Um, I want to make sure we get enough consensus here before we move beyond this and people could be pissed off that they didn't, you weren't consulted maybe. Or Affiliative is like, hey, I really just want to get along. But, you know, if, if Visionary is a plus three, uh, coaching is a plus two, Democratic and affiliative are like a plus one and then there's pace setting which is kind of like neutral um, it's like a zero you could say and it can work okay but it, it, then people can kind of get bored where they're just like all right well I'm just want to just try and keep up with you or something uh, and then there's uh, one called commanding which is like a negative one but it's very important to use at certain times that's like if something's on fire or the company you're running out of money in the company or Something, you know, something major is going on. People expect you to just start in and start commanding and saying, all right, there's something on fire. You grab a bucket of water. You go over there, create a line. You know, go. It's not, you're not like, hey, who do, let's take a, a vote here about what, what do you think? What do you want to do? You want the bucket? Um, you know, that's, you can't do that. So people expect you to, to do, use commanding, but you can only do that for so long. It only lasts so long. And then, then people get worn out if you continue. So people use it all the time.
0: Okay. Negative one. That's kind of the, it's like the executive order in like in a moment of crisis. It's being able to just be decisive, but in exceptional situations. Okay. Uh, what, was That's the, right. what was the, what was the, where can I, I
1: want to read up on this. Where, uh, this is, you're quoting who? Sure. It's Daniel Goleman. He wrote, he's a guy that pioneered emotional leadership. And you can, if you search for Daniel Goleman, leader, Goleman, leadership styles, and then go to Google images, the easiest way is you'll see a whole bunch of people creating these little charts. That show okay. Here's a visionary plus three, and you can look at a whole bunch of people's charts, and that's the easiest way to consume and grok it. You know, within you know ten minutes. And I I, I don't even think I finished the entire book, um, but I just keep referring back to his charts time and time again, uh, and that's that's the easiest way to learn.
0: Hundred percent, checking that out. I'm definitely going to check that out. Yeah. Um, another thing I was I wanted to uh, to talk to you a bit about because so you had a TEDx talk, and one of the things you talk about quite in depth is building trust. So. Yeah for uh, there's a lot of companies out there or just a lot of people who they've got this great idea that has the potential for, you know, whether it's to be, you know, a, a major disruptor or innovator. Uh, the thing is you got to get people on board with your idea and you need them to trust you. So for whether it's you're a new company or it's a new product that, you know, there's no real demand or trust for what are some, like what's some advice that you give based on your experience, you know, with, with couch and with upstock too, what are some, um, important things to look into to consider uh, when developing trust.
1: Sure. So it depends on who you're talking about. If you're talking about a marketplace like Couchsurfing, where it's kind of a two sided marketplace, you've got hosts, you've got servers. If you don't have and you have a big fear, hey, what about the crazy people? What about the axe murderers? Whatever you know, people go to when they first hear about it. Uh, you, you obviously have an issue of trust, right? So what you're trying to do is get people to trust each other so that and, and filter out the untrustworthy, you know, you know, point 0.1% or whatever, some small number of untrustworthy, because everybody seems untrustworthy at first. But then once you get to know them, you see their profile, you see their references, you see their vouching, their verification, you have all these trust indicators, and you see those holistically. And you think, actually, this person seems like they're probably a pretty cool person. I can't wait to meet them. Trust is gone now. We're not even thinking about that anymore. So you can think about what are the what are the different indicators of trust and how do I embed those in the system? Now, that would be if you're trying to make sure you create trust and reduce fear, um, you know, a, in, in a marketplace. So, uh, that would be one way, but let's say that it's uh trust within your company, right now that's a bit different. I mean, you're still trying to have indicators of trust. Um, I, this might be a little bit of a plug for upstock, but I mean, this is something I'm near, near and dear to me. And I, that's, I just can't see around this problem is, uh, it's, it's hard to get people to trust you, um, at first. I mean, anybody you meet, it's going to take you a while. They're going to need to see you under all kinds of different situations, challenges, opportunities, and see how you react to say, okay, I, I know this person. Some people feel more comfortable. And they're like, I, I trust myself to intuitively know whether you're trustworthy because I'm a, you know, I practice out a lot in life and seeing what's happened. So some people are better at you know, having intuitions about these things. And then sometimes even that doesn't work. Um, so the one way that you can get, you can, you can, Get people to trust and know that each other are trustworthy is with alignment. When you have alignment, you know that you all want to go to the same place. That you have the same um, rewards if, they, if people are successful, and you have the same pain if things are not successful. That can create a lot of that. That alignment creates stress because it's like, hey, you're in it with me. We're all in this together, uh, and so that's why I think you know, and super passionate about Upstock and other any any kind of alignment tools because. It makes leadership a lot more potent. Like if the leader says, well, "Let's climb that mountain over there," and you know that the leader is going to make bank uh, if the company's successful, and you're not going to make jack. Well, you're uh, you're probably going to be like, "Meh, maybe if it's convenient." Or you might be thinking, "This is just time for money. Just tell me what to do. I don't want to use my brain to try to figure out any hard problems. Just tell me what to do. I'll I'll do it, uh, and that's and that's good enough. I'll I'll try to pretend like I care more." Uh, you know, but if I know that we're not aligned, you know, you're going to have to use some real great potent leadership to leader me and get me to believe, um, which can sometimes people would say is manipulation. But if you're all aligned and, uh, you're providing leadership, that leadership is way more potent and you say, let's climb that mountain. People are like, yeah, let's do it. So it takes a lot less leadership to get people all on the same tri- uh, page, uh, and pulling, you know, like pulling hard in one direction.
0: I see what you, that's a really good point. And um, I mean, do you think the same principles that you're talking about right now? Again, you were, you were developing, I mean, I guess the term would be trust systems. This was, you know, Mm -hmm. you're talking about uh, you were building an actual marketplace. Do you think these kind of principles would work for again, whether it's, you know, whether you're a small business, uh, you know, you're, Mm -hmm. I don't know, you're a photographer, I don't know, you, you know, you're, you're starting an agency and you need to develop this kind of trust with clients. Do you think those same principles apply
1: there? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you want people they they, they want to know that not only do you have quality photos, I guess, uh, in this case, um, hopefully you have a portfolio and they can see your photos and they can trust that you know how to operate a camera. You get can get some good results. You've you seen your thing in the past, but they also want to know that they're not going to run into any big pr- big problems with you. Or like, what if you just don't show up? What if you're hit and miss on your, your re- the results? What if you're you um just you know don't pay your bills on time or. Or whatever, anything. I mean, it goes both ways, right? As, as a customer, you know, you, when you're looking for customers, um, so you want to in, you should be able to indicate in, in all the ways. You got to think, what are the ways that I could indicate that I'm trustworthy? Oh, testimonials that are on my website. Uh, here's a big smiling picture of me and saying, I like literally saying, I care on the website. Yeah, uh, um, you know, you, there's so many indicators of trust, right? That you could you could use and and uh, employ. Some people are just really good at um, when you talk to them on the phone. You're just like, this person just seems really trustworthy. Usually, they're using language that's talking about we, not I. Um, it's taught, and they're they're looking out for your needs before you even know that what they are. They're not trying to maybe push you into some direction. They're trying to ask you and help discover truly what your needs are without um, you know trying to push you in some direction. Like uh, you, you know, some, uh, one is the classic used car salesman uh, technique of, oh, I'm going to try to you know hard sell and and people have this feeling like, well, anything that's valuable shouldn't need to be sold. So you don't, you certainly don't want to be trying to sell it too hard because then people think there must be something wrong with this. Uh, this person is trying to sell it too hard. So there's all kinds of indicators of trust, uh, you know, endless, right?
0: What's it, what's really cool. And it never really occurred to me until you brought it up is you were talking about alignment again with Upstock, the importance <laughs> mm-hmm. of, of alignment. And one of the most important things that I I learned from some of my mentors, they were always saying... Um, the best, like some of the best clients you'll have, it's when you're both, you have the same vision. If I'm a person and their mission is the same mission as our company, it's naturally, there's kind of this, like you're working together. And I never thought of it as, you know, as alignment, but that's something like, I look at some of our clients that we have with advisee, our best clients that we just like, where there's weird synergy where things work, it's because we have the same values. We have the same core principles in both companies and things just run like butter. They just they yeah oh so it's crazy. Yeah. I never had that like verbally you know, like properly
1: articulated, but alignment is so powerful. Um, yep, yeah. Yep. When you have a when you have alignment and uh, you know, like you said, you're you're listening, you're and and you finding you know finding commonality. It's like saying it's it's like a shortcut for trust. Hey, if we've both experienced some of the same things in life, we must have similar outlooks. It's like you tell a story, that, you know. Hey, oh wow, I, I had a similar experience. You tell a story that's kind of like proving. That you can get them, or at least get some of their challenges or their excitement in life. So that's it's important to think about what are what are the commonalities and find those and, and build trust. So one one thing that's in, one thing I, you know in my TED talk I talk about how different areas of the world are more trustworthy. Uh, my wife she's from Scandinavia, and in, in Scandinavia, sixty-two percent of the people walking down the street would say yeah, people are generally trustworthy. Whereas in I think in the U.S. it's about twenty-seven percent. In Brazil it's about six percent. So in co- countries that are more, that people generally trust each other, they don't, you don't need contracts as much. Like if you're going to go have a, w- one of the examples I heard was, if you're going to have a wedding cake made in Scandinavia, you don't need to go, go write a contract for it. But in the United States, you do. Uh, you know, you need more lawyers. And that's more overhead. There's trust and control infrastructure that's more overhead that drags the relationship or drags on the transaction or drags on your GDP of your country. Um, but if you're in Brazil, you need bars on your windows. You need lawyers to buy, you know, to walk down the street or something. You know, to, to buy anything, you might need a lawyer for, for many, many more transactions. So you you can lose. You know, there, you, there can be a, a cost to not having trust. And and some economists like have have shown that 25 percent of GDP is locked up in trust and control infrastructure. And if you can build trust in ways that don't cost a lot, you'll get you'll get a lot more. It'll be you don't need to spend as much time. Waiting to see if you can trust somebody, you can transact and relate more quickly.
0: Little side note: I just again, it's a little off topic, but uh, I wanted to get it in there because we're talking about trust and kind of you know uh, economic systems. What's your personal take on? Forget about cri- Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and all and all that yeah. stuff. But blockchain, as you know, as a technologist, you're a technologist. What's your perspective? Yeah.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's obviously a way to for people to trust each other because you can trust math, right? You can trust cryptographic. Uh, if you trust the cryptography uh, and you trust that there aren't any backdoors and bugs, then, yeah, you can trust math, uh, for better or worse. I mean, I worked in politics in Alaska and I got to see I used to think that it was like gears turning and that it, it, it was a system that just kind of operated a certain way. And I learned it's so it's so not. It's just people and their preferences and their egos and their dreams and hopes and fears and all that stuff. That's really driving all of politics and and most human interaction, and so that could be you know a a great thing and it could be a really bad thing. You get quite a mixture sort of out, outcomes there, um, but it certainly is a human thing. And when you get in, you know, you get too far into Bitcoin, I can imagine a future that is so algorithmic, people can really trust it, but it's less human, and so you'll have maybe some challenges with that. And you might we might get to a point where everything is so causally. Um, Predictable that it might get boring, and we might have to create simulations and jump back in those to get back to the days when we didn't know what was going to happen. So, you know, take it too far, and maybe uh, you know, maybe the world becomes more boring. Who knows? I just one could only wonder. Let's hope not.
0: I th- uh, let's yeah. hope it doesn't get more boring. Let's hope it gets more and more exciting.
1: Listen, to I, think, I, think, I think I think it is getting way more exciting. I think with there will always be something new layer of emergence, and something will show up that uh, just keeps it keeps us interested.
0: I wish we could talk more about simulation theory. I would, honestly, I would love to. I'd love to get someone like you you know, get your opinion on something yeah. like that.
1: Um, we maybe could, do you want to do, do, you wanna do five, five, more, five, ten more minutes? We can still yeah. do that if you yeah. want. Yeah. 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 We'll yeah. Just do a quick here because I, like, I, I don't yeah. want to
0: keep you if you're busy.
1: It's okay. No, we, we still have some
0: time. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, um, should we? I'm trying to think. Should we go into simulation
1: theory? I mean, I, I don't know if it's a little bit off. It's a bit we off. We could. I mean, some people seem to like it. I've certainly spent a lot of my time in life thinking about it. That's for sure. So I would, I could certainly make comments on it.
0: Okay. Let's do Okay. Let's do it. I, I want something like this in it. Um, okay. So, okay. Not, not to go, not mm-hmm. to, 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 veer off too much, but mm-hmm. you brought up simulation theory. So this mm-hmm. is something that, um, you know, people like Elon Musk, uh, talk about a lot and something that I've been reading up, but I, you know, again, I'm, I'm a complete moron. So I, I have nothing to say on the matter, matter, but, I would love to get someone's opinion, you know, a, a real technologist's opinion on this. What, like, what's your take on it? And explain, sure. so for anyone who doesn't yeah.
1: know simulation theory, maybe just give a little bit of a, an explanation. Yeah, of course, of course. So the, think of it like this. Um, if technology goes at the rate it's going and it's exponential, uh, you know, each year, you know, with Moore's law or whatever, however you want to measure it, it's just things, more things are happening and more solutions. And, you know, before long, we're harnessing the power of the sun and um, with each person, you know, the amount of computing power that's available for each person, if you take the computing power and divide it by the number of people, um, is like practically infinite. I mean, it's just any uh, quantum computing into it that maybe you just get so much computing power per person. Uh, people aren't going to die. You're going to make it so that people could live forever. And so now what are you going to do in the next 10,000 or a million years? You're alive, right? You—you you, Things are kind of predictable. You're not going to die. Um, uh, maybe you're going to go off to some other star systems. Maybe you're going to go in hyperspace. I don't know. But anyway, if that's the case, you're probably going to run ancestral simulations. Boy, it would be great to get back to when it was like, you know, 1999 uh, or 2010 or whatever, even 1875. And it would be great to be a human and not know what's going to happen because that was the, the beautiful thing about not knowing what's going to happen. I don't know what the outcomes are and I can live all these different lives. And so Elon Musk saying there's a great chance that we're not in a sim sorry a great chance that we are in a simulation there's a one in a billion chance that we're not in a simulation that's you know the simulation hypothesis nick bostrom um basically came up with a with a little little postulate or, or i can't remember what it's called but anyway basically saying that there's a good chance we're in a simulation and i can imagine in the future if there are multiple simulations uh, competing for resources competing for people's attention hey come to our simulation it's so good it has these features it's kind of magical um you know, uh, we've got the serendipity knob turned to seven. Uh, magical things happen. You just run into your friend. You're walking, hiking in the forest, and suddenly, if you, you trip and fall, and you trip and you you you're tying your shoe, and you get up and you keep walking, and boy, there's your friend. Just uh, your paths are crossing. What are the chances of this? But where if it's a good simulation, the chances would be very good because you know the serendipity knob is turned to seven. And I think to me, it feels like you know, I mean, just because the simulation doesn't mean it's any less real. It doesn't mean that it's any less human. Um. If anything, maybe it's more real and more human because the parent reality we come from is maybe more boring. Maybe it's more predictable. Maybe it's just not as fun. Um, usually when we're creating a VR, we're trying to get into a simulation uh, that is, we have more powers. Maybe we could fly. I don't know. Whatever that, you know, more interesting is. And so it's very possible that, you know, we, the parent reality is more boring and this is a very beautiful and very real and everything is just as real, if not more real. Uh, than where we come from. But I can imagine it being a you know, multiplayer big multiplayer game and we're all um, here learning how to be humans. Uh, I, it could be any... I don't know. At that point, I'm like, I don't know what, you know, what the point is particularly. I could come up with a list of 10 possibilities. Um, uh, and then that's where the, s- the simulation theory starts to go, really all, all kinds of possible directions. But fun to think about. And it's fun to think about You know, if, if we're here to maybe learn something you know, how can I learn? How can I grow? How can I share with people? How can we all uh, cooperate together to reach higher levels of emergence and of cooperation where we get to, in our lifetimes, witness really amazing and beautiful things and, and go on great adventures together. So we have a lot of problems to solve, of course, but that is also an opportunity.
0: Th- that's, uh, I mean, you, it's insane how you explain it too, because like us as humans, what do we do? We do create virtual realities, for example in video games and i don't think yeah. we ever really create video games that are boring the whole point of it is it's stimulating. Right. it's something for us to escape into so the idea right. that i don't know some seven dimensional being is actually the mm-hmm. one that create, that's kind of pulling the strings on this reality it kind of it puts things into perspective because that's what we're doing now we're just kind of not fully conscious of it and the, so you're essentially what you're saying too is we're creating these if that's the case it's we're creating these mm-hmm. realities because it in this, that real, let's call it the real reality. It's so boring or so easy. We need, we need some kind of struggle. It's we need some kind of struggle or human beings. We need something to occupy our
1: minds. I think that that's statistically more likely than many other possibilities. Ooh, hi Kitty. (laughs) Kitty came over to say hi. It's scratching. Yeah, I think that's about right. It's it's um, the chance. I mean, statistically, if you look at all the possible simulations, that seems like a very likely one. Based on if you say, well, what are the patterns we witness in our own world and how we are diving into these simulations, games, whatever? Uh, I think it's likely that that this is a very yeah you know, very probable uh, scenario.
0: Listen, man, again, my little peanut brain can't fully grasp all of this right now, but uh, this has been so much fun. I didn't expect us to finish off talking about, about simulation theory, but yeah, sure. Sure. it's uh, sure. It's it's something I, I think about from time to time. And I again, I with my limited mental faculties, not something I can get my brain around. I love having smart people like you explain this stuff to me and, and get their opinion on. Um, well, they, Everyone finds you, because uh, I know you got to get going, Casey. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We have to. Where can everyone find you?
1: Sure. So I am at caseyfenton.com. Of course, you come say, say hi, ask a question, whatever you want. I'm always available for there for, for, for chatting with folks. Um, Also on upstock.io, U-P-S-T-O-C-K.io for, for, um, you know, equity related questions and uh, information. Uh, And then you can go to egohackers.com to uh, sign up for our, the, the book and the platform when it's available. Uh, we're, I would say 80% of the way through the book right now and we're building the platform right now so that hopefully people can have an ego score. Um, we'll see if that ends up being possible, but at least a platform where people can share ego hacks and ego traps and we can all help each other, um, have better lives.
0: I love it, man. Look, thank you so much. Let's stay in touch. I want to yeah, pleasure. About, I want to get your opinion on aliens next time. That's the next thing we're going to talk
1: about. Sure. <laughs> happy, to, happy to chat about aliens too. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening today and watching. And thank you for the great questions. I really enjoyed this interview.